0: Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit saymythyroid.com forward slash peptides. Hey this is Dr. Eric and in this episode I interviewed Shivan Sarna who is the author of the book Healing SIBO. Not surprisingly we chatted about SIBO which stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and of course we tied it into thyroid health. If you or someone you know has a gut issue and nobody has been able to figure out the underlying cause then you might want to tune into this episode. And so let's go ahead and get started.
1: Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show.
0: So with me, I have Siobhan Sarna, and she is author of Healing SIBO, the, the book Healing SIBO, which I just finished. I was telling Siobhan that I just finished listening to the audio version. All right, so let's get to the intro here. So Siobhan Sarna is the author, again, of Healing SIBO, TV host, the creator of the SIBO SOS Summits and Community the Digestion SOS documentary series, the Gut and Microbiome Rescue Summit, the Lymphatic Rescue Summit as well. A lot of summits. And and chronic condition research. And after a lifetime of struggling with health issues, Siobhan made it her mission to demystify her own health struggles and to share that information with others who are struggling. So her special skill is finding and connecting with the leading expert doctors and connecting those experts with the people who need their help. And her personal mantra is SOS, save ourselves. And that's what she has helped thousands of people do. And thank you so much for being here, Siobhan.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love summits. Just a note on that, because we're doing the Dental Health Connection Summit right now about biological dentistry, which is so interesting. Topic for another time.
0: Awesome, awesome. You're the the host of that too?
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, you really do have summits on a regular basis. Yeah, I do. I
1: really love them because they help me. And so that's how I got started. I originally was going to write a book be about my SIBO journey. I had all these notes and notebooks. And my best friend said to me, you're going to write a book, right? Because, like, you have it right there. And um, I was like, yeah, I need to really do that. And I started to write the book. And then I realized writing a book is not as easy as one thinks. And um, uh, since I'm a TV host, I'm a talker. And I love summits. And I s- said, I'm going to do a summit to get the information out. And then Dr. Allison Seebecker, who is a world-renowned SIBO expert, who now we're friends. Thank goodness she was also my doctor. And she has SIBOinfo.com, which is an amazing free site about SIBO. So she introduced me to all of these SIBO specialists and helped me connect with them. And then we created the first SIBO SOS Summit. And in the beginning, SOS to me was like someone come and save me, but it turned into Save Ourselves and the patient advocacy and education, Dr. Seebecker and I have created a SIBO course called SIBO Recovery Roadmap. And here's why. It's because there is a need, because a lot of uh, gastroenterologists, Western-trained doctors, do not um, really know how to treat SIBO. And for a long time, it wasn't even really a seriously you know, considered diagnosis. But there's a, an algorithm that Dr. Mark Pimentel created about how to treat and diagnose SIBO, which, by the way, I'll define in a second. And then Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis and Dr. Allison Seebecker added to that. And so that's what the book is based on. So you can do it with a practitioner. I always recommend that. Um, But a lot of it you can DIY. There's also lifestyle aspects to it. But before we do that, what is SIBO? SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. It is the number one underlying cause of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And it has a variety of underlying causes itself. So it's caused by something and it causes other things. And the symptoms of SIBO are bloating, constipation, diarrhea, alternating constipation and diarrhea, things like rosacea and uh, restless leg syndrome. I've had some of the doctors uh, connect it clinically in their observation to infertility. There's just uh, malnutrition, overweight, underweight. There's so many things that SIBO is a part of, but one of the big things that was so shocking to me, and it was shocking is that food poisoning is the number one reason why people get IBS and SIBO. And it can have been I food poisoning was when I was 5 and it was when I was in India because my parents traveled and were importers and I got very sick. Then I came home. I got, well, then I came home and went on a field trip to upstate New York. And I was a city slicker and a little kid. And they, we were, I was eight and we were milking the cows and the, the teacher like looked away and we like took the, the milk right out of the udder. You know, we were being a little like having fun. And I got so sick. Oh my gosh. I got so sick. So who knows what the exact you know bacterial source was but I was never the same after that. So for people who have had traveler's diarrhea, for people who have had like a bout of the stomach flu, uh right, these could be underlying causes and I'll explain why. The other thing and maybe this has happened to you doctor where you've had dinner with everybody and we all ate the same salad, okay, or whatever, even at someone's home and then lo and behold Joe gets food poisoning, but no one else gets food poisoning at the same table of the same food that everyone else ate. And it's like, well, it couldn't be food poisoning because we ate it too and we're fine. Ah, the more you're exposed to food poisoning, E. coli and the other uh, foodborne illness, foodborne bacteria that are pathogenic, the easier it is to get it. So you're more prone to having it in the future. So my husband and I just did this. He, we got some nachos at a restaurant. The next day, he felt a little bit weird, a little bit off, and I felt terrible. So his immune system is stronger than mine when it comes to the gut. And so that's just a perfect example. We ate the same thing. He was like, ah. I was like, Ooh not not good. So small intestine bacterial overgrowth is what SIBO is. And the reason why this food poisoning causes these implications down the road is because of motility. And the impact in this particular case is when the bacteria of the food poisoning that I was just talking about causes a confusion within the digestive tract of the small intestine that impacts the M- MC, which is the migrating motor complex, which Dr. Mark Pimentel refers to as this uh, sort of the, the sweeping motion, the crumb mover, this debris of bacteria that when it doesn't move out, overgrows, and then that's where you're becoming like a mini microbrewery and it's a fermentation. So that's what leads to the bloating. The food particles are being consumed by an overgrowth of bacteria that are in the wrong location. Not necessarily, you, you know, related to the fact that you had food poisoning years ago. It's not necessarily the same bacteria is still there, but uh, it could be the same kind. But that bacteria that normally would be swept out by the MMC or the migrating motor complex is still there, is eating your food, is fermenting that food and releasing gases. And then you it leads to all of those other symptoms. So when the migrating motor complex is impaired and doesn't have that sweeping motion, which can be done because... As of the confusion of the um, molecular mimicry that's happening because it is confused by the antibodies that were created by the food poisoning episode, that's when SIBO often occurs.
0: So it is an autoimmune process from what I understand, correct?
1: So it's not like lupus or psoriasis is an autoimmune uh, disease, but it is, as you just described it, an autoimmune almost like consequence.
0: And so food poisoning, just to, to confirm It's a common cause of SIBO, but it's not the only cause, correct?
1: Right. I'm so glad you just said that Um, because other underlying causes can be adhesions, which is a big one. And an adhesion is an internal uh, collection of I call it like just internal scar tissue. It's collagen that grabs to hold your body together after surgery, after an injury, you've been kicked in the belly by a horse, the body freaks out and grabs the collagen to hold you you together. The cesarean section, what's that scar tissue doing? It is holding you together, but it's also those adhesions can be a barrier to healing and a lot of different things. A lot of scar therapy going on these days, like never before. But internally if you have endometriosis if you have scleroderma a lot of other things you can have these this adhesion and it can literally pull the tissue of the small intestine for example into a way that let's say your migrating motor complex may not be impaired from food poisoning but the tube that is the small intestine could be you know, over here instead of where it's supposed to be because of an adhesion pulling it. And that can impact your ability to sweep out the debris from the small intestine. So there's a physicality that's possible as well.
0: And what what do you do if you have adhesions? Maybe see a visceral, someone who does visceral manipulation?
1: So there... Um, Larry Wern and the Wern method and Belinda Wern um, are um, with clear passage. They created clear passage and they have a very special technique for body work that is different than visceral manipulation, but we'll talk about that. And they started by um, helping people remove bowel blockages as well as opening fallopian tubes and helping with fertility through this body work in the abdomen. There's also the Mayan belly. Uh, I call it the Mayan belly rub. That's not the official name. It's Arvigo, I think is the the, the terminology. And it's a Mayan technique that helped women with fertility. Um, that has, can help with adhesions. But visceral manipulation, which is a training that uh, is very specialized by the Burrell Institute and by Upledger, the cranial sacral outfits, uh, they teach visceral manipulation, which is like internal organ manipulation. And I know a lot of people have great success. I've had success with that, but you really have to go to someone who's really devoted to it, really committed to it. It's like an obsession for them. Please don't think that you're going to have your adhesions resolved by someone who's gone to only a weekend seminar, who's also a wonderful massage therapist but doesn't have this very specialized technique like dialed in. And I say that about also cranial sacral therapists in general. It is a very specialized technique. And if you find someone who is good at it, treasure them because they can change your life for the better.
0: And when I was listening to the audio version of your book, I think you mentioned a website. I don't know if you have that off the top of your head.
1: For the visceral manipulation? Correct. I just looked at it the other day. Just type in Upledger like literally how it sounds, as well as uh, B-A-R-R-A-L. They have a shared directory. And then when you go to the directory, you can type in by zip code and you know state, I think. And what you want to find is someone who has the initials VM, as in visceral manipulation, in their training. And you can actually search by training. So you can backward engineer that as well.
0: How about low stomach acid? Can low stomach acid also play a role in small intestinal bacteria overgrowth?
1: There's a little bit of controversy around that, but I think intuitively and clinically a lot of people feel that that is part of it because of use of PPIs or just it's a natural occurrence within the patient. If you think about what stomach acid does as helping digest the food, but it also kills bacteria. So, yeah, I think that is I think that my 7 years on Nexium was definitely a contributing factor. And so it comes down to um some terminology where it's underlying cause, contributing factor. Thyroid, right? Like we'll talk about the thyroid, stress contributing factor, use of antibiotics. I'm not going to say abuse, but like overuse of antibiotics can be an underlying cause. And then you combine that with that food poisoning. I had it in, you know, that country I was in on vacation a decade or two ago. So it starts to have a bucket that can fill up. It can be just one thing, but I do think there are a lot of contributing factors. And I do think that stomach acid and bile play a role in it as well.
0: And you mentioned thyroid. So
1: talk to me about yeah,
0: Let's Let's talk a little bit about thyroid health and SIBO. So I see it with both my hypothyroid patients and hyperthyroid patients and in the literature and you know uh, just in general you see it more associated with hypothyroidism maybe because also hypothyroidism is more common than hyperthyroidism but I've seen a number of hyperthyroid patients with uh, with SIBO. Now from a hypothyroid perspective it makes sense uh, as hypothyroidism can potentially also slow down that migrating motor complex uh, when it comes to a decrease in stomach acid, that's again in the, according to the literature more common with hypothyroidism. But you know, I have hyperthyroid patients who seem like they might be deficient in stomach acid, maybe because they have something such as H. pylori. But then also there's that immune gut connection because most cases of hypothyroidism are Hashimoto's, and most cases of hyperthyroidism are Graves' disease. And I'm not saying that SIBO is a trigger. I don't think there's any evidence that SIBO could trigger Graves or trigger Hashimoto's, but there's what's called that triad of autoimmunity. And a part of that triad of autoimmunity is an increase in intestinal permeability, which is a leaky gut, which SIBO potentially can lead to. And so I think it's safe to say that even if SIBO doesn't cause Graves or Hashimoto's or other autoimmune conditions, If you have SIBO, it might be very difficult to get into remission if you have thyroid autoimmunity or, again, a different autoimmune condition. Would you agree with that?
1: I do agree with that. Right. And that's why it's so important to make sure people are on a prokinetic, um, helping to coordinate the migrating motor complex um, after treatment. That's really, really important. And just a, a note about that is just a baseline I want to just announce is that, you know, diet is specialized in SIBO, but it doesn't treat it. It controls the symptoms, and that, which is great because you can really control how you feel. You can feel much better very quickly, but there's a little bit of a myth I like to bust, which is that diet doesn't cure SIBO. It controls the symptoms. And with low FODMAP and with the SIBO-specific food guide, which is what Dr. Seebecker created and pulled from low FODMAP and SCD and GAPS diet and put it all together in one food guide, that's very liberating because you can control more about your symptoms and how you feel. And it's a low fermentation diet, or I should say food list. But the, the thing is, is that where people, I think, get off track, and this happened to me, is that when you're diagnosed with IBS, you are told, here's a, here's a sheet about low FODMAP. Which is um, these specific carbohydrates that uh, are going to be lower in these foods that should help with symptoms of IBS, and then you're said, you know, you're sent on your merry way, and then there's all these wonderful, brilliant food bloggers and foodies and cookbook writers who then like take you down this beautiful rabbit hole of just low FODMAP, but you're not dealing with the underlying cause, you're not reducing the bacterial load, and not everyone who has IBS has SIBO, but the vast majority is. And so I want to tell everyone, if you're just stopping at low FODMAP diet, as I did for a really long time, know that there is a whole world of treatment to get to your underlying cause and or, this is really important, I know you must see this in your practice all the time, is managing it so that even if you can't resolve that underlying cause because you had a cesarean and you can't get rid of all those adhesions, whatever, The ability to live with a chronic condition and have it treated can help you to live a much more comfortable, 100% better life than an untreated condition. So we kind of have to adjust sometimes about having a cure versus feeling so much better and being like, yeah, I got SIBA. Yeah, but I manage it. And I have a special, I, you know, stay away from onions and garlic and specific and apples and certain foods that are higher FODMAP. And I take my prokinetic every night to help with the migrating motor complex. So everything's getting swept out and I do some magnesium maybe. And uh, life is good versus I hate it. I feel miserable all the time. I ate a, you know, uh, an Italian dish with a lot of garlic in it. And I thought I was going to die. You know, it is much more manageable and i just want to tell everyone chronic conditions when managed can be life changing so don't get stuck on only talking about a cure because it's a big mind shift change
0: yeah no thank you for mentioning that and so prokinetics. so as you mentioned they they stimulate that migrating motor complex help to you know keep keep a state of well, i don't know if you could say wellness but just really prevent the placebo from getting worse And what are some of the different prokinetics out there? And and I'd be curious to know which one that you take.
1: So I take something called Ressalor. What's it called in the United States? Motegrity. Motegrity. Ressalor is the Canadian name for it. Um, It's percalipride. And it was a, um, uh, it wasn't allowed in the States for a long time. And so I got mine from Canada. And it coordinates the migrating motor complex. So it's not a laxative. And so there's a myth. I just saw it in our big SIBO SOS Facebook group. I have C. IBS, con- uh, excuse me, I have, I have IBSD, IBS with diarrhea. I have SIBO. I don't, my doctor says, why would I want to do a prokinetic? And logically I can see why someone would say that, right? But prokinetics are not laxatives. They coordinate the migrating motor complex and the digestive process. So in actuality, even if you have diarrhea, type you should still after treatment do a prokinetic.
0: Yeah. So no, that's that's thanks for mentioning that. So even if you have whether you have IBS C or IBS D, then uh you still would want to take a prokinetic after that's treating crazy. treating SIBO. So and and with the treatment, so again there's three types of treatment for SIBO, correct?
1: Correct. Correct. There is the uh and you'll see it on page one eleven of the book um this and and their chapters devoted to it there is the most effective which i'd like to start with first which is the elemental diet which is a liquid diet that is uh, historically disgusting tasting, tasted like vomit because it is made of amino acids. Good news is Dr. Michael Ruscio, Integrative Therapeutics, they have a couple of more, have made formulations that are actually much tastier. You, you're not going to throw up by even like thinking about drinking this stuff. And um, you would do that for 17 to 21 days and retest. And well, 14 to 17 to 21, the range there. And you just you just consume your calories from the elemental diet. And it is quite severe because you're not doing any food, because you're only feeding your body, not the bacteria that's hanging out, overgrowing in the small intestine. So it's a different technique of actually starving that bacteria versus actively killing it with uh, an agent. So that's it's the most effective. It's the most difficult, let's face it. And it's not inexpensive. It's not like crazy expensive, but it's not inexpensive. Then there are herbals, which are the antimicrobials, which are things like allicin, which is the active ingredient in garlic. You don't want to eat the garlic. You want to have the allicin. I like Allie med and Allimax. Neem, oregano oil, candy-backed in AR and candy-backed in BR are some formulations that have been studied to be effective. The thing with antimicrobials is that the treatment is usually four weeks versus two weeks. That's what the studies showed. And then it might be slightly more effective than the pharmaceutical, but um, it's less expensive uh, depending. Okay. It depends. Does your insurance pay for uh, the drug I'm about to talk about? But you know, you can get this on Amazon, these herbals these antimicrobials and you have a kind of a variety to choose from so after you know you do a treatment if you're like i'm going to try another one that's kind of cool um but then the antibiotics are rifaximin if you have the um the hydrogen kind the, the gas being produced by the overgrowth of the bacteria being hydrogen producers or you could do neomycin and rifaximin and now and that's if you have the uh the methane producers and then there's another third gas that they've been able to test now with trio smart which was the test breath test created by dr mark pimentel um which is the hydrogen sulfide which is a, a little bit of a different treatment but rifaximin you know if i'm sure you have people all the time who are like i don't want to do an antibiotic no mm-hmm, whatever yep. you do no Rifaxin is a very interesting antibiotic. It stays in the small intestine versus nuking your entire microbiome. It is what they give people for traveler's diarrhea. And um, it can be very expensive, or I have happened to have been blessed with decent insurance, and I was able to buy mine for $10. So it just really depends. If, um, Salix is the company that owns it, and they do have coupons on their site. You can ask about those. And then if you are always using that Rifaximin with the antibiotics, and then there's Neomycin, and there's also Flagyl that can be used. So there are a couple of other ones that are combined with the Rifaximin if you do have the methane production um, kind of overgrowth.
0: Yeah, Rifaximin I know is pretty expensive if you don't have health insurance. I've it had a few It can patients, be, but...
1: There, people can get it from Canada. Um, there's some people who also found Decent sources in India. But, you know, I would say keep keep pushing, call the company, see if you can get a coupon. There are ways to at least um, try to get a better price.
0: Good to know. And, and so just to summarize the three types of treatment for SIBO: elemental diet, herbs, and antibiotics, but not typical antibiotics, rifaximin or difaxin, which just affects the small intestine. And then the treatment will differ if someone has high methane, let's say on a, you know, SIBO blood test, then they would need to take not only rifaximin, but maybe neomycin. And same thing, if they were to take the herbs, they might have to add allicin to that. And so it is more complex potentially if someone has high methane. And I guess one other thing too, you said for as far as like four weeks for the the herbs, two weeks for, two the, weeks. for the antibiotics but some people do need multiple rounds. So they might yes. need to go a few months with the herbs or even a few months with the antibiotics, correct? That's
1: true. That is correct. And that's why Dr. Seebecker really wants people to retest after that first treatment round, because what you're going to be doing is dropping the parts per million of the uh, presence of the, be- of the gases. And so you, like the first time I took my antibiotics, I was like, why am I not better? Well, I wasn't fix because I still had levels of gas to go down. It's just not often a one shot. And that's very unusual. We're not used to that. We're used to taking a pill, getting better within two weeks and you know, moving on. So um, it's about reducing the bacterial load, which can take multiple rounds.
0: So she recommends a breath test after every round. Is that correct? I don't know if she still does that. I think in the past. She does.
1: She does. Unless you're like 90% better unless you're 90% better. And then there's, you know, if you have an initial test and it's positive and you do the bacterial, you know, you do the treatment, if you can't afford to do the second test, you know, there are ways to work around that, but if possible to do the second test so you can see if the treatment worked and how well it worked.
0: So the, I mean, I, I do like the breath test are false results, like false negatives possible. So if someone is suspecting SIBO, Let's say they do the breath test and it comes back negative. I know there's also SIFO, so someone might have small intestinal fungal overgrowth, but so that's a possibility. But is it also possible they might have SIBO, but the breath test doesn't come back?
1: So, positive? So that's a great question. So there are things that mimic SIBO, and this is all part of the complicated uh, diagnosis. SIFO, Candida do mimic SIBO symptoms, as do parasites. So this is very, very common, and that's why testing is so important, because if you're going to treat parasites, it's very different than t- treating SIBO. So if you have not done the test prep properly, and it includes a 12-hour special diet of just very reduced Uh, types of food because you're trying not to feed the bacteria too much during that time and then 12 hours of fasting so it's a 24-hour period and a lot of people will like do the special diet for 12 hours and then sleep and then do the test in the morning you know have their overnight and then do the test in the morning so i had a false negative but when you looked at the test the test was positive the test was accurate the interpretation was negative negative. So that's part of that, although I I think if I, you know, I'm hoping that facility in Tampa has fixed their knowledge base. I'm assuming they have. Um, This was years and years and years ago. If you have to check, when did the lab last calibrate their machines? You know, the equipment is very, very sensitive. If you, um, some doctors have it in their office, sometimes you can get the script and do the test at home, which is kind of nice because it's a three hour breath test. So it just depends on the circumstances. I think that the days of false negatives are much reduced, much reduced. But again, the patient also plays a role in if the test prep isn't correct, Um, that can impact easily the outcome. Like one of them, I chewed some gum that morning and that can impact the results of a test.
0: Wow, good to know. So the test prep plays a role. And then I think most of the labs now will do it for three hours, but in the past, some of them would only require a two hour test, which also could lead to some false negatives.
1: Yes, yeah. So try to get the three hour. That's my personal opinion based on everything I know. Yeah, not everyone does that. And so, you know, if your doctor is really a SIBO specialist and they prefer the two-hour test, then go with that if they're like are an expert in the world. But um, I think most people are going with three hours.
0: All right. Well, thanks for that. And also in your book, you mention I think it's called the IBS Smart.
1: Mm. Which is that
0: the same as I know there was the IBS check? And yeah, then...
1: IBS. This is the, the newest iteration of the antibodies that I talked about in the beginning of the blood test to see if you had the antibodies created from food, food poisoning. It's called uh, IBS Smart Test. Yes. And it is also developed by Dr. Mark Pimentel. This is from Jamelli Labs. And, um, what's cool about the IBS smart test is you do need a doctor's prescription, but they have it set up so that if you fill out a questionnaire, they have a doctor in house that can write you that script, send you the test kit. You get a phlebotomist. There are a lot of traveling ones right now. There's also, um, in the United States and certain States, this places, uh, any lab test now, you, you know, that you can get the blood draw and then they will send the test in. And then, you know, you can find out if you have the antibodies which really means you need to be taking that prokinetic because you'll now know what your underlying cause is. And that's super, super helpful.
0: All right. Well, thanks for sharing. And where can people find out more about you? Obviously, we want everybody to go out and get your book, Healing SIBO, which they could find on Amazon, or they could also visit healingsebo.com.
1: Come to SIBOsos.com because it's there and it's a link to your major booksellers. It's $17.99 right now on Amazon. So that's, it's usually around 20 bucks. So it, listen, this is going to save so much time, energy, and money. This is truly the book that I wish I had had when I first got the, even heard the word SIBO. It would have saved me years. It would have saved me years of suffering. It would have saved me thousands of dollars. And seriously, uh, I put my heart and soul into it. There are over 40 recipes that are part of the SIBO specific food guide. Dr. Seebecker read every single word. She wrote the foreword. It's seriously, it's one of the best investments you can make. I love my summits that I've done in that, you know, 40 hours of info about SIBO and a 10 hour documentary about you know SIBO and leaky gut and IBS. But if like, you're like, I need one thing that's quick and easy and inexpensive to help guide me, get the book.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, again, I read the audio or listened to the audio version and it's only about four and a half, four hours, four and a half hours, but it's packed with so much information. I almost prefer that than listening to a 10 hour or 12 hour audio book where they beat, you know, beat around the bush and don't get to the point. So just packed with so much information. So yeah, definitely either get the book to read or listen to an audio book, or you can do both. Can you say one more time those websites?
1: uh it's go to sibo you can find okay. it there it's clickable to like you know Barnes and Noble Amazon you know all your major booksellers and um the audiobook is done by an award-winning actor she did um the vice president's book interestingly enough uh i thought she did a really good job did you enjoy her her narration yeah, i agree
0: i agree i thought it was <laughs> yeah job. i thought she did a real good job so yeah again listen to the audiobook or or read the book and uh, you know, I think if you're dealing with SIBO, I, I don't know. I think, I, I mean, maybe both, but I would say maybe read it because when, when when I'm it's nice like, to highlight exactly.
1: It's so. nice to highlight, and the studies we used are on a website that um that is clickable. So I think it's clickable. I'm quite sure it's clickable. So it can take you to the study. That was the goal. But if they didn't, they're there, and you can just cut and paste. And someone on Amazon was like, "There are no there are no uh, references in the book." I'm like. Yeah, because I made it more convenient for you. Go to the website, click it, cut and paste, and go to the study. So yeah, I didn't waste your paper with like something that you're never going to like type in. Anyway, <laughs> take care. Thanks so much. All right.
0: Thank you. Have a great day, Siobhan. Thanks again for, uh, for doing this. Appreciate oh, thank,
1: it. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast.
0: If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. Even though my focus is helping people with thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions, I think it was in 2016 when I started becoming fascinated with SIBO, as I attended numerous conferences that focused on SIBO, and in 2017, I went through one of Dr. Allison Seebecker's online trainings for practitioners, and I currently try to keep up with the latest research. Unfortunately, some natural healthcare practitioners dismiss SIBO as being a real condition, But not only is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth real, but at times it can be difficult to get under control. And while the SIBO breath test isn't perfect, in my opinion, it's still a good idea to get this done if you're suspecting that you have SIBO. And it also would be a good idea to work with a practitioner who has experience helping people with SIBO. And of course, check out Shivan's book on SIBO as well, as even when working with someone, it's nice to already have some knowledge on the topic.